listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. In our last episode, we talked with Marie, whose husband Jonathan died suddenly and very unexpectedly from a drug overdose. In today's episode, we're talking with another young adult whose spouse died, but this time after almost a decade of living with cancer. John and Melissa met back in the 90s, the 1990s to be clear. They dated for a few years, and eventually they got married. For John, this was a relationship like none other he'd experienced. A relationship that was mutual and rooted in a deep sense of love, appreciation, and care. Melissa helped him to feel feelings he didn't think he would ever experience. Even throughout Melissa's illness, as John moved into the role of caregiver, she still wanted him to be himself, to show up and share with her all the thoughts and emotions he had, even the most vulnerable ones about losing her. Melissa died just over two years ago, and in the past few months, John put plans in place to radically change up his life, plans that were inspired by the love he felt in his relationship with Melissa. He's now exploring the question of, how do we love and care for ourselves in a way that mirrors how the people we're grieving loved and cared for us when they were alive? John, thanks so much for joining me today on Grief Out Loud. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And by here, listeners, what we mean is John is actually sitting in Portugal right now, and I'm in Portland, Oregon. So this is our first international Grief Out Loud recording. So John, can you start with telling us a little bit about you and Melissa? How did the two of you meet? Melissa and I met in law school. We went to Berkeley. This was in the mid-90s. We were in the same small section, and the two of us were kind of dorks. So we would go to the law library before it opened. So the two of us would be sitting outside waiting for it to open. We just got to chatting every day. And yeah, I became friends and she was dating someone at the time, but they broke up towards the end of first semester. And I wasn't really interested in looking to date someone in my first year. And somehow things just started clicking, started dating midway through the second semester. And how long were you together before you got married? Almost five years, which was kind of intentional. Like we kind of decided that after a couple of years, we both felt like, well, I think this is probably going to work. And, you know, being around each other in school is really different than kind of the real world. Let's give it a year, wait at least a year after we get out and start working, because that's a pretty big transition. You wanted to make sure the relationship translated well outside the library and law school. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, those library love fests, like those don't necessarily (laughs) move out into the real world. But yeah, exactly. And both going through it, it was both that it translated as well and that it, it was a transitional time. And so how would we deal with the transition as well? And is there a particular memory that's been coming up for you lately 
you know, as I've been traveling, more than a memory, it's a particular missing, I suppose. Particularly after she was diagnosed, we started taking more trips as we could. And as I travel now, it's not so much, I guess, there's memory. It's more just a sense of it feels weird without her and it feels like she should be here. And there, yeah, and there is something about like, you know, even just packing up my backpack or unpacking when I get to a place and yeah, that's what we would do. Just everything would be things that we would do and doing them by myself, I particularly notice it in a way that I guess is a little bit new for me because I haven't really done a lot of traveling since she died. Mm. I've been thinking about when someone dies of an illness, there's the grief of getting the diagnosis, the grief of facing the illness, and the grief when the person dies. What do you remember about finding out about Melissa's diagnosis, and how did your experience of that change over time? When she was first diagnosed, it was in 2007, she had found a lump under her arm, so she went to get it checked out and they ended up doing a biopsy. It's melanoma. Uh, and that was on a Friday and we were going camping that weekend. That first weekend was horrible because we went camping anyways, but we didn't know if it was stage three or stage four. We knew it was one of those two and stage three means it's kind of, at least in melanoma it's spread to the lymph nodes. Stage four means it's spread distantly, so it's everywhere in the body. Both of us did a lot of crying that weekend because we just didn't know. We were, oh, stage four is a death sentence. Mm. And it was, <laughs> we came back from the camping and she had a PET scan the following day, so a whole body scan to kind of figure out which, which was it. You've never seen people so happy to hear there's a stage 3C diagnosis, which is like the high end of stage 3. We were thrilled. Oh, my God. It's it's just, you know, your lymph nodes are just riddled with it, but that's as far as it mm. went. Great. It was surreal to be like, wow, we're, we're really thrilled about this. It, the up and down part really continued because it recurred a few times. And a few years later, it showed up in her liver. So now it is the dreaded stage four. Like we go in and out of, you know, feeling like, oh God, this is, this is the end. Really sad. And then shifting into a mode of, okay, so what do we do? And just kind of matter of factly dealing with it. The up and down is just terrible, but in some way we got used to it too. It's almost like you acclimate to the terribleness, but that doesn't make it any less terrible. Right. It was still difficult, but familiar in a strange way because how much she was in and out of hospitals, and I would stay there as well. I feel bizarrely at home. It's really comfortable, and even I've stayed in touch with one of her doctors afterwards. And You know, it's interesting you say that, John, about feeling comfortable or at home at the hospital especially since most of the world would think like, oh gosh, that's not a place I want to spend any time. But, but I wonder about that idea of if you're with someone that you love 
and they're going through an illness at their at the hospital, like there's other people there to share in the responsibility of caring for them. And, and in that, what, what kind of caregiver were you? How would you describe yourself? It's funny. Like, uh, in a way, I don't know other ways to be. So it's a little difficult to have perspective on it. It's a great question. As a very, I, I would describe myself as a, uh, a motivated caregiver. The way that I kind of was raised and grew up, I wasn't supposed to be a bother or to, but it's very different mm. with Melissa. <laughs> but I noticed I could push through that much more easily and ask questions and be a thorn in the side. I felt very driven to, to learn and to know what's going on and to try and be an active team member. You know, if the doctors would tell us something, I would look it up and be able to understand it, ask them questions. And a lot of that was all in the time while she was sleeping. Because <laughs> what I really wanted was just to be with her. That was something that was probably a big surprise to me. We never had kids, but people who have children often talk about, they just want to like, stare at their kids. And I really became aware of that kind of feeling of, I just want to hang out with her and be with her. All the kind of work I would do while she slept and while she's awake, I just wanted to sit on her bed and just try and make her not feel alone. And also I, I loved being with her. She was always adamant about me being open with how I was feeling. Still oddly mutually supportive during the caregiving. It's strange being raised a man in a very masculine kind of Texas culture of be strong, stoic, um, and tough. And to be raised that way and yet to be having a mutually supportive relationship with Melissa where I'm, she's sharing with me how she's feeling and I'm sharing with her how I'm feeling, despite the fact that she's sick and I'm still leaning on her while she's leaning on me, was odd and and really connecting. Yeah, it, it seems like such a powerful thing that you're able to be yourself with her in this really intense process that you're sharing together. And you didn't have to check your feelings at the door and just show up as this like, I'm here to take care of business and advocate for you. But I can still be John and I can still be your husband. I can still be in this relationship. It's both really good for me. And it was really what she wanted too. Showing up as, you know, stoic and tough just feels mm. lonely to her. Then I'm not there. What she wanted was for me to be there. So in a way, opening up to her was caring for her because it was what she was asking for, from you to maintain that emotional connection. Exactly. Yeah. With Melissa being diagnosed back in 2007, she was dealing with this illness for almost a decade before she died. For you, after having the illness be such a big part of your life for so many years, when Melissa died, what surprised you about the grief of that versus the grief of watching the course of her illness? Like, how did it match or not match with what you thought or expected that grief might feel like? I don't know if this part of it's grief or just reaction to death. I was surprised at how much 
and how much shock kicked in and how long that seemed to last. Like I was surprised that it was several months of just kind of being numb and not necessarily feeling sad. I mean, yeah, there'd be times of crying, but it, it wasn't like I'd be overwhelmingly sad or that I would even say, Oh, I'm, I'm grieving. It, it, it was just in a fog. I suppose I thought of it that grief would be more cinematic. Think of learning emotions through movies of, oh, someone dies, and then you have the sobbing spouse. It just wasn't that. Then after time, it the grief and the sadness and this real sense of loss seemed to really start to, <laughs> lack of a better word, blossom. That was hard. I I always thought it's strange that I I wished I could cry. And I didn't seem to cry much. And I, I wanted to, like, I, and I've been working on that for a while, not just crying, but kind of just trying to be in touch with emotions, but I just didn't really cry. It was uh, surprising how, particularly when the crying and just the powerful sobbing would come on, how I'd have this bizarre feeling of, this sucks. This is awful. And I'm also, I'm glad to be touching into this rather than pushing it down. I guess a strong enough emotion that it kind of broke through all my kind of learned ways, not being emotional. I'm almost picturing you like living in one house, the numb house. And then there's the house across the street that has all the feelings. And it's like the street at the beginning after Melissa died felt really wide between those two houses. And then after the grief blossomed, as you said, being able to go over and knock on the door of the feeling house and then maybe crack the door open a little bit and then to be able to walk fully into it and be like, whoa, this is very uncomfortable. But I'm also weirdly grateful to be able to get into this house. That's not a bad analogy. I mean, looking at this, I probably wasn't choosing the walking over times. It reminds me a little of when, like, early on in grief, and someone someone's just like in it. They're feeling those cinematic feelings of grief, and they might say, "This is too intense. I hate feeling like this. When is it going to get easier?" And then, if the grief does start to feel a little less intense, they get scared that it means something about them, or is in some way a measure of whether they love and miss the person. Then they almost want to find a way to make the feelings be equally intense again, maybe as a way to feel connected to that person in the same way. I definitely experienced that. I'd worry about, you know, what does it mean if I'm not feeling it? And, and, and there would be times of, yeah, feeling the grief and it would be, a, and having that, the cinematic crying, having a sense of gratitude for that, just because, okay, good, phew, that's a relief. I'm, Mm. I'm not an asshole who didn't didn't actually love her. John, how how do you feel about the term widower? I've always thought it's a weird term anyways. Um, but I always thought, think of it as applying to someone who's 70 or older. And I was 42 when Melissa died. And it somehow just doesn't doesn't convey anything it's more like it's yeah it just doesn't say anything useful I guess it's the weird thing like it's a strange thing I don't know what would you know saying 
Oh, I'm single? Well, that's equally useless. Yeah, like just that one word can't really convey the depth of a relationship. No, it doesn't. And I and I get it. That's how that's how things are. You know, it's we use language to shorthand for anything and everything. It also seems to be a term that some people really connect with and resonate with. And and then I also think about the ways in which it can erase elements of people's identity. I mean, you think about widow, widower, it's so binary in terms of gender. You're either this or that. And, you know, for so many years, same gender, same sex couples were, weren't legally allowed to get married. And so did they feel like they had equal access to that terminology to acknowledge the significance of the relationship they have with the person who died? I just think about that and how the terms we have for grief can, can leave a lot of people out of the equation. That's, I never thought about that, but that's a great point. Like I, so I was just thinking, like, so here I am, I'm talking about like how I don't really like the term widower. And yet, if I didn't feel like I had access mm. to that, that would be even worse. You know, because grief feels... I feel lonely in my grief and to feel like in a way my grief isn't even legitimized be horrible. Yeah, it brings to mind other people maybe in the same age range uh, who weren't officially married to their partner when that person died and then thinking like, do I get to call myself a widow or a widower? And what does that mean about me as a griever and how the world's going to respond to me? And if I wasn't part of a institution that's so readily recognized. That's funny. Yeah. Cause Melissa and I were kind of on the fence about getting married. Thinking about that. Had we just, you know, just dated for 20 years, it would probably somehow feel less legitimate just because that, term isn't there isn't a term that's out there and that's that sucks for something that's already hard we're recording four days after the two-year anniversary of melissa's death how does year two feel compared to year one there are definitely some things that have picked up more so probably than the first year and i think it's around you know the notion that oh you should you should be fine after some period of time. And so I think uh, those thoughts get even stronger, say, on the second anniversary for me than the first is having thoughts of, oh, God, it's been been two years. I should I should be over this, whatever that means, rather than still feeling a sense of loss. The internal critic is a little bit more activated around the second year than it was on the first year. The feelings are maybe more stable around kind of this sense of, oh, this is how things are going to be. I don't have as much up and down. <laughs> Still have an awful lot of difficulty. It's also funny that it's two years and I still have some sense of, oh, I'm going to see her. That's not really happening. And I know that's not true. The only thing that I kind of think about is, Sometimes I'll hear about an amputee who talks about, oh, I, I still think my arm's there, or I still feel my arm. I notice that sense more now. Yeah, it's like your mind gets it. This is not temporary, but your cellular structure is somehow still shaped around the form of her. 
yes, that's, that's a really good way of putting it. That's a lot of how it feels. The year two versus year one, that's the dominant thing as opposed to as much the mix of emotions. If we go back to that earlier analogy of the numb house and the feeling house, I'm picturing you rather than being tossed fully into the house of feelings, it's almost like you've packed up some of those feelings into a bag and now you're carrying them with you. Yeah. Speaking of bags, you recently blew up your life a little bit. You sold your house, you quit your job, you're currently traveling around Europe. What role did grief play in making these changes? Oh, a big role. I think for me, one of the things that I've found that I really grieve is a lot of what I got out of our relationship, which among many things was Melissa really cherished me and she loved me. And there's a lot of things like that that I probably never really learned to do for myself. And so I noticed with grief that I, besides missing Melissa, I miss an awful lot of the things that basic feel-good human aspects of life that I would get through our relationship. And so I noticed that missing, and that's hard. Have this sense of loss and this sense of, oh God, and I, I've also lost all that. I could very easily sleepwalk through the rest of my life. But noticing that sense of loss through the grief, I also have a feeling of what Melissa gave me to actually feel things that I never thought I could feel. It was such a gift. I refused to squander that. She let me feel what it feels like to actually feel truly cherished and to feel, to feel loved and seen. And so I see my travel, a lot of that is about trying to shake things up, get myself out of a routine, and to really push myself to try to develop those characteristics for myself. I can learn to be kind to myself, do for myself what Melissa would want me to do or to do for me or to more to take the attitude towards myself of, oh, go to Portugal and take Portuguese classes. Not for any other reason than, gosh, you know what? That might be nice. That's the big driver. And it's that sense of grief of having lost that source of those emotions, that source of caring. I don't want to squander that gift that she gave me of feeling those feelings. Grief is a big driver for coming here because I lost something when she died that I may be able in some way to develop, at least in part, for myself. John, that's such a powerful way of giving words to what I imagine is an experience that's felt so deeply that it's probably hard to put it into words of the the depth of the caring and the, the cherishing that you had with Melissa that you received from Melissa and like how do you translate that to do it for yourself and so that you don't waste an ounce of the gift that she gave to you thank you that's nice of you to say 
John, thank you so much for being on the show today, for calling in from Portugal and for sharing with me and with our listeners about your experiences with grief and about your relationship with Melissa. I mean, you talked about having that cinematic grief and it, it, it sounds like you had quite the cinematic love story. Felt that way to me. Yeah, I loved it. Thanks for having me on the show. And listeners, we're grateful to you as well for being part of our community. If you're new to our show, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, anywhere else that you get your podcast episodes. And um, our show is produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. We're a nonprofit in Portland, Oregon, and all of our services are offered free to families. So if you are ever in a place where you'd like to donate to our work to help the show keep happening... You can easily do that on our website, dougy.org forward slash grief out loud, and just click the donate button. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.